You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, Riverside. Wow, that was that was uh, surprising. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Caught me off guard a little bit there. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for joining us this morning. My name is David, and we're looking uh, again into Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. But before we dive back in, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I humbly submit myself under your mighty hand, and I simply ask that you would speak words of life through me to open hearts and open minds. We thank you for your word. Amen. Again, welcome to week three of our Unimaginably Good News series through the book of Colossians. And here at the beginning of this section, I want to make it very clear that we're reading a letter written by a specific person to a specific group of people at a specific time in history. And this certainly does not mean that it has nothing to say to us in the here and now, or that we need not look for how its content can apply to us today. On the contrary, it is as instructive for us today as it was for those original hearers of it. I think it's worth mentioning for at least a couple of reasons. First, I think it's important that we try to understand as much as we can about the author of any written documents, but certainly of ancient and historical texts. Now, I am the furthest thing from a scholar of any caliber, so you're not going to get much more from me than you already know about Paul the Apostle. He was a Pharisee of the highest order, but while on his way to imprison or execute more Christians, he met Jesus Christ face to face. And apart from being being temporarily blinded, the entirety of the rest of his life would end up being completely transformed by his relationship with the living Jesus. His sight was restored Uh, by a man named Cornelius, who was a disciple of Jesus, and then he went on a number of missionary journeys preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is extremely important to try to understand all that we can about any author's intended message. This may seem obvious beyond mentioning, but it's easy to forget that we live in a time and a culture that has turned aside from wisdom-seeking Uh, from the wisdom of seeking understanding, and has largely embraced the disastrous idea that only our personal interpretation means anything of value, and that intent means nothing. And speaking of ideas, I'd like to pause here for just a moment and ask you to pay very careful attention to what I'm about to say. I think it has great import for our lives, not to mention for our understanding of the text, which I promise we will get to. Bear with me. We live our lives almost exclusively by ideas. The things we choose to do, the motivations of those choices, the way we feel throughout each day, the thoughts that we think and believe, what we think and feel about things that happen to us, all this and more is rooted in our ideas. This does relate directly to our passage, but before we get there, I just want to remind us of some of the most powerful ideas ever known. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, 
according to our likeness. And God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. This is the most incomprehensible idea of them all. God made all things. He made you and me, and it was good. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. I've said it once before here, and I say it again now. When Satan came to destroy Adam and Eve, he did not come with a stick or a rock. He came with an idea, a very plausible idea. Deadly wrong, but very plausible. Now we, now we come full circle. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was propelled by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Do you see Satan's idea here? You're famished, and you have the power. Go ahead and provide for yourself. Trust in your own power. Jesus rejects this idea and clings to his heavenly Father's word. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan's idea? Empower yourself. Take charge. Make it happen. Worship yourself. Worship me. What's the difference? And Jesus' idea? I will worship and serve God only, and I will trust in his power. We're looking at the battle of ideas here. Then Satan took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And lastly, see Satan's idea? Go to a busy public place, like the temple, the town square, like Facebook, and promote yourself. You will gain attention and followers galore. Just promote yourself. And Jesus' idea? It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I will humbly allow God to promote me if, when, and as he sees fit. Not my will, but his be done. So you noticed that Satan will twist even scripture to tempt Jesus with bad but very plausible ideas. Please notice that. 
Ideas are the engines of our lives. And this is why they are also the main focus of any work of the enemy against us. Like an engine, once they begin, they'll continue to run on their own until someone or something breaks them, turns them off, and replaces them with better ones. Now, let's go back to Paul and the Colossian disciples. Quick recap, Paul's been transformed from a self-righteous, murdering persecutor of Jesus' disciples into a disciple himself. (laughs) He has obeyed the command of Jesus recorded in Matthew 28, and he is blazing a trail across Asia Minor and the northern Mediterranean coast with the gospel of the kingdom which Jesus proclaimed. It's worth noting that the area that Paul worked in was not some safe backwater that nobody ever heard of and that nobody ever went to. These places that Paul ministered in were at the very center of culture, power, and influence in the whole of the ancient world. On his third missionary tour, the gospel of the kingdom turns Ephesus on its head, and Paul gets thrown into jail, an occurrence which would happen more than once. But Epaphras, I think we we noticed him in week one or week two, Epaphras, who became a disciple of Jesus under Paul's ministry, preaches the gospel in his hometown, and many there are converted as well. And then, trouble begins. So Paul writes this letter to encourage them, to love them, and to deal correctively with some bad ideas. Now, finally, we zoom in on this next section of the letter. We look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your good order and the strength of your faith in Christ. There are three themes which are repeated in this section, and I want to focus on them today. Then I want us to think about how the message and the intent of this ancient letter can strengthen us and guide us into wisdom. First, we see the theme of suffering and conflict. In verse 24, Paul speaks of rejoicing in his sufferings, and of filling out in his own flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. 
Then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he reiterates how much he is struggling for those in the church at Colossae and Laodicea. Now, before anybody gets sideways over this idea of Christ's afflictions lacking something, let's all take a deep breath and think. And I had to do that a lot when I was preparing this because I really got sideways over this comment, okay? Is Paul saying that there was something insufficient in what Christ suffered? Does he really mean that Jesus' suffering and death were not enough to make atonement for us? No, I don't think so. I think Paul is saying, rather, that he's describing the suffering and the difficulty that every believer naturally will expect to encounter when they entrust their lives to Jesus as king, while still living in this world occupied by the enemy. Remember, the invitation into the kingdom of God is not an invitation into unalloyed bliss and ease or into the end of all suffering and difficulty. On the contrary, it is the invitation out of the current corrupt kingdom of the world. If you've truly entrusted your life to Jesus, you must recognize that you've switched allegiances. And this almost always brings reprisals. Jesus himself makes many mentions of the high costs that following him brings with it. And perhaps there's a list of scriptures behind me. I'm not going to read them all. You can jot them down and study them on your own if you, if you like. And even other writers uh, of Scripture pick up the theme in these other verses, Romans 5, 3, 1 Peter 4, James 1. You probably see them up there. The Bible never proclaims a gospel inviting us into a life without difficulty, without suffering, or without loss. On the contrary, it goes so far as to promise many of those things to us if we truly follow Jesus. But let's not forget Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds, then covers back up. Then, in great suffering and lamentation, he sells all that he has. No? Okay. Let me try again. Then, in great tribulation of spirit and with, with gnashing of teeth, he goes and sells all he has. No? What's it say? In his great joy, he joyfully goes and sells everything he's got to buy that one field. That's a different idea. It's a different idea than the one I typically am thinking, okay? I would submit to you that this great joy flowed from a vision of the right now kingdom of God that was far fuller and more accurate than the one that we often have in us. Is it possible that Paul is not simply using flowery language or a literary device to trick us into suffering? Is it possible that he truly knew how to rejoice in his sufferings and in his imprisonment because he had a clearer vision and a more real relationship with the king than we do? Is it possible that Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew that anything he did in Jesus' name, that is, by Jesus' authority and with Jesus' resources, anything he did, including suffering, would be turned into goodness and glory? That it would not be wasted? but that it would produce bountiful fruit? If I were to be very vulnerable with you this morning, I would confess to you that one of my biggest personal hesitations 
regarding suffering for Christ is the fear that it will be wasted, that it will come to nothing except suffering. In this, I expose some of my own very bad ideas about our King. So we've looked at the theme of suffering a little bit in this text, and the second big idea Paul speaks of is the mystery of God which was hidden for ages and ages until Christ's incarnation. In verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, he speaks of God making this mystery fully known. And then in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, he speaks of this mystery revealed in the lives of the believers, which brings the encouragement and unity of love and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge which are in Christ himself. This theme is, I believe, at the core of Paul's intent in this letter. It appears that some false and wayward teachings, some bad ideas had begun to sprout up in the church at Colossae, and Paul was writing very expressly to contradict those bad teachings. Now, I imagine someone else is going to be covering the latter part of chapter 2 in a week or so, so I'm doing the best to stay in my lane. Suffice it to say that some people maybe had come into the fellowship and were promoting ideas contrary to what Jesus and Paul taught, Maybe they were putting together a small clique, an inner ring of elites. I don't know, uh, and it's not my job to go there. The gospel of the kingdom, the unimaginably good news that Jesus and Paul proclaimed was that anyone, anyone who wanted to entrust their lives to God, who wanted to submit their own kingdoms and queendoms to the true king, could do so. And he promised that when one does this, that one can even right now begin to come to life inside the kingdom that is the eternal, living, and active kingdom of God. Christ being in us, filling us with the hope of glory, this idea changes everything. This truly was unimaginably good news to those Gentiles in Colossae. And it is still the most amazing proclamation ever heard in our world. So we've seen Paul rejoice in suffering for Christ, and we've just barely touched on the mystery of Christ in us. And lastly, we see the theme of perfection in Christ. That is, the maturing of his disciples, the hope of glory. In verse 28 of chapter 1, and again in verse 5 of chapter 2, we see this theme of growth, maturity, perfection in Christ. Paul speaks of working to be able to present every one of the Colossian disciples complete or mature in Christ. And later he rejoices to hear of their good order or good discipline and their stable faith. He speaks very specifically of admonishing and teaching them with all wisdom so that he can present them mature and complete in Christ. So what's Paul talking about here? I think Paul's talking about the process by which the kingdom of the heavens, which one only enters through Jesus himself, transforms disciples into complete and mature people. Now, if that's true, then there's some understanding we can gain. We can understand that simply repeating a prayer or mentally assenting to a set of ideas is not the gospel, is not salvation, and is not redemption. 
we can understand that the moment of a person's conversion is the commencement of a process of transformation through active relationship to Jesus that reshapes them into the person God always intended them to be. And it is not the terminus of that process. Remember the potter's wheel metaphor, Jeremiah 18, where God speaks of himself remaking that which was ruined? Now, I'm not trained in Greek, but I do have a good copy of Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. And as a side note, do you know why it's called the Exhaustive Concordance? Because after a morning of carrying it around, you'll be exhausted. Okay, sorry, lighten things up a bit here. Uh, I didn't expect that to be very funny, just so you know. Uh, when we look again at chapter 2 and verse 5, we see Paul reiterating this theme of the perfecting process a true disciple engages herself or himself in. He speaks of rejoicing in the knowledge of their stability and their good order. Now let's consider that last phrase for a moment. The word Paul uses here to describe the maturity and growth of these saints is the Greek word taxis. That word means arrangement or order. I mean, that is the word in the original document, taxis. The plural form is not taxes, but taxis. And it means the movement of an organism in response to a stimulus, such as light or the presence of food. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that extraordinarily intriguing. Paul speaks of his joy in the reports that the Colossian disciples were responding to the teachings of Jesus and that they were moving, growing, and maturing into the kingdom of God each day. Notice the clarity of this word. Paul is not talking about these disciples striving to earn something extra from God by being, well, extra. They were responding to the stimulus of the Spirit of God working in their minds and hearts, in their social context, and even in their bodies as they submitted themselves to the Word of God and the teaching of the apostles. Now, as I said at the beginning, I would do my best to bring some application from this specific ancient letter into our lives today. We began with a theme of conflict and suffering. It seems quite straightforward to me to understand that we do not merely get to participate in the glories that Jesus won on our behalf, but that we get to participate in his sufferings as well. We get to. This is an integral part of the maturing of his disciples, not so that we can atone for our own sins. He already did that for us, but so that we can be reshaped into people who can truly shine gloriously in the midst of darkness. So when we find ourselves suffering or in conflict of some kind, we simply must open our hearts and our minds to hear the voice of God and permit him to fill us with the grace to believe that he is truly a good father, that he would never allow one drop of our suffering in his name to be wasted or squandered. The fact that he longs to do this for us is indescribably good news. Secondly, we touched on the great mystery of the kingdom of God, that is Christ in us 
even us Gentiles, which is the hope of glory. Now, I cannot attempt in any way to do justice to this topic in a few minutes or a few weeks. I'm really not even capable of doing that. But it's, it's quite possibly one of the most important topics that any body of believers could lean into. But I can do this. I can challenge you and me to think about your own thoughts, your own ideas regarding the glory of the kingdom of God and your destiny in it. I would go so far as to say to every one of us here, myself included, that our ideas are almost too small, too low, too dim, and too feeble when it comes to thinking about and understanding the hope of the glory which is actually intended to inhabit us beginning right now. I dare you to think about this and to ask God to open your eyes to this reality. The fact that you are intended to shine even brighter than Moses did with the glory of God in Christ Jesus is unfathomably good news. Lastly, we saw the expectation that discipleship to Jesus Jesus builds us up into complete and mature humans, able and willing to be presented to the king and creator of the universe. So the question is, how's this going for us? How are you being admonished and taught to move further up and further into the kingdom of God? Are you taxis? Are you responding to the stimulus of the Spirit of God to grow in Him, to trust more in Him, and to obey what He taught? Some months ago, I defined grace for you as a form of energy that is outside of ourselves and that empowers us to do the things we need to do but we cannot do on our own strength. You're not required to accept this definition. Fact, you're not required to accept anything I've said today. But if you do, it will become very obvious to you that the biggest consumers of God's grace are not the people we would call sinners, those whose greed, corruption, or waywardness are obvious and pitiable. No. If this definition is good, then the biggest consumers of God's grace are the, one, are, the, are the people we sometimes refer to as saints. It is their voracious consumption of God's energy, empowering them to live righteously and to do good, that makes them saints at all. So again, I will ask us all, myself included, this question. Are we growing in godliness and responding to the stimulus of the hope that is Christ in us? It truly is unimaginably good news, but not because I said so. As we prepare to close, I'll invite the band to return, and our communion servers can come and prepare themselves to serve. I hope that as we enter into this time, that we will think deeply, that we will feel deeply, and open ourselves to the Spirit of God who is right here, right now. As we enter into worship and adoration of our King, and as we approach these elements to receive them into our bodies, remember that Christ did die, but He also rose from death. 
And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is the King of glory. Entrusting your whole life to him is an unimaginably good idea. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.